Hey kids, I'd like to introduce you to a new podcast you're going to love. On behalf of myself, Morgan Rector, of one of the most horrific true crime podcasts, Human Monsters, I'd like to ask you this question. Do you like to travel? Do you like picturesque locations and getting away from it all? Fun fact, there is a morgue on every cruise ship. After all, people die everywhere. Why wouldn't they die on a cruise ship in the Bahamas? Well, this new podcast has all that and murder. Murder. It's called Slaycation, and it's a darkly humorous look at murders and mysterious deaths that took place on vacation. Hosted by true crime fanatic, her comedy writer husband, and his TV producing partner, Slaycation brings a unique perspective to chilling, thrilling, and what-the-fuck stories of vacations gone horribly wrong. From the twisted tale of Harold and Tony Henthorne, whose romantic anniversary in the Rocky Mountains ended with one of them falling off a cliff, to Angelica and Vincent, two recently engaged lovebirds whose Hudson Valley kayaking adventure ended underwater. Each episode of Slaycation will have you asking, accident or murder? But it's not just the stories that'll intrigue you. It's the discussion between a longtime married couple and business partners who happen to be Emmy-nominated TV producers. Each episode of Slaycation also includes humor, takeaway, and travel tips that will keep your next vacation from being your last. If you're ready to pack your body bags, Slaycation is available on all major podcast platforms. Search for Slaycation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Hi guys. In order to keep the show ad-free and increase the frequency of production, donations are a big help. Some of you have been very generous in donating, and I appreciate it greatly. If you could give to the show's Patreon account, it would result in good karma and buttress the show's prospects. The URL is www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash leader one, L-E-A-D-E-R-O-N-E, www.patreon.com slash leader one. Thank you so much. Hi everybody, welcome to Human Monsters. 
It was always a goal of mine to interview a social worker for this show. They serve the underdogs in society, especially abused and neglected children, and I feel they deserve praise and recognition for the important work they do. The interview subject of this episode chose not to be publicly identified, so she shall be known as Wanda. The interview was conducted last year, and afterwards Wanda requested that I alter her voice so that it would not be discoverable by any of her co-workers or supervisors. The problem was, after distorting her voice, it was very difficult to understand. That is why I am releasing this new version. I have transcribed her answers into AI software, with an electronic voice delivering her answers clearly. Enjoy. Hello. Hey, uh, this is Morgan of the Human Monsters Podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. How about you? All right. And uh, just for those of you who are listening, uh, for the purpose of the show, um, my guest is going to be named Wanda. She prefers to remain anonymous. So the first question I'm going to ask you is, uh, what was it that inspired you to get into the field of social work? That's a bit of a complicated question, and I'll try to explain it as completely as I can. My educational background is in criminal justice, and I've done probation work that is also casework-based. Social work and justice work really go hand in hand. And a lot of my classmates who graduated before me in justice ended up going into social work. My friend at the time, he managed to convince me to apply because I was in that phase where I was waiting for the perfect job opportunity, and it wasn't coming. So I said, you know what? Sure. I'll see how this goes. And I applied and I ended up getting the job. Next week will actually mark the one-year anniversary of me accepting that job. So I haven't been doing it that long, but it really had a profound impact on my life. Yeah, so social workers come up quite a lot in this podcast because I've done so many child abuse episodes. Yeah, I'm interested in how it affects you personally. Is it? I have spoken to other social workers who said it's hard not to bring your homework with you, as it were. Uh, you see a lot of disturbing things, and you speak with people who have experienced very traumatic things. Um, ha- has that uh, affected you at all? Are you or are you good at compartmentalizing your life so that your your career doesn't bleed into your personal life too much? I used to be, but if you are just constantly saturated in that environment, it would be impossible for it not to take a piece of you. I worked for my residential treatment program. I was there six days out of the week, and it really does take a special kind of person to do this job. But if you can't do it, that would take a piece out of you as well. I never fully learned how to leave work at work. You hear things, you see things, people confide in you about things that are nearly impossible just to shake off. There have been a lot of nights where I'd lay awake thinking about these things. Some of these things have really changed how I perceive human behavior. For me, personally, I haven't learned to compartmentalize that part. It's tough. And so the um, the people who regulate your profession or who, or in your case, maybe more directly your employers, have they, have they not offered any kind of option that people who do your line of work um, can undergo counseling or have that or any kind of related resource to depend on in case it gets too stressful in that regard? They do. I haven't used it personally, just because I have my own therapist. Most agencies do provide some sort of employment assistance program, and I do have a few co-workers who do utilize that service. 
So uh, what, what's the nature of most of the cases that you yourself handle? When I worked for the residential treatment, basically what we were was considered a step-down program. So youth who were in more secure or more medical facilities would typically come stay with us before they go back home. It's like an adjustment period. Or they stay with us while waiting for a bed to open in a more specialized facility. We have youths ages 12 through 18. I never worked with a youth that was over 21. Here in the United States, given the right conditions, you can remain in the juvenile system until you are 21. But I didn't experience that. And a lot of these youths are dealing with the repercussions of neglect and emotional, physical and sexual abuse. And so they've turned to substance abuse as a way of coping? When we would get youths in, like when we would get intake, we would usually create safety plans, which specialize in the behavioral issues with the child. I would say 80% of the cases that would come in, we would have to create substance abuse safety plans. Oh, I see. And uh, what, what, what do you find is the, uh, the overall nature of their prospects of overcoming these problems? Do you think they're just damaged forever, or do you think there's hope that they can overcome the effects of abuse? I personally don't like to think of it as damage. I think of it as they are stuck, and they haven't been given the right resources or support until it's too late. If they were just in a placement that was very structured, they would do well because within that kind of structured environment they have done extremely well. And then there are others who are very cynical, and they are not willing to work with the services that are provided to them. I believe in those cases they are unable to be reset. It's got to take service providers with a lot of patience and experience in their field to really break through. And one thing I'm aware of too is that uh, the system tends to dump people with psychiatric problems and substance abuse problems into, into jails, into prisons. I guess they don't consider that those places are actually, uh, they, they can exacerbate these problems. Uh, you know, being in prison, even if you have no mental health problems, can give you them. And also, there's lots of drugs in there. Um, does that, have they been through the juvenile system and end up having their problems increased? In the big picture, yes. I personally haven't dealt with the juvenile delinquents who have been in juvenile detention facilities and then came to our program. It has happened in that residential program. In my time there I just didn't experience that. Old prisons are more of a facade, really. They really manipulate the public into thinking they are rehabilitating these adults and juveniles into behaviors that are typical in society, when really, prisons, at least in America especially, are mostly privatized, and they are making money off that. So their goal is mainly to break you down, and they get to do what they want. And that's a whole other topic I can go on about for hours. In this regard, their case doesn't warrant them being in an adult prison. It's very different now. It can have the opposite effect. Sometimes it works out in their favor because they need it, and other times it's just not the sort of program that is designed for that youth in particular. So it does more harm than good. Or they just stagnate in due process. So what, what would you say is the, the success rate, like on a percentage basis, in terms of the kids that pass through your program? I don't even know if I can give you a number. It really depends on the youth. Off the top of my head, and with my current knowledge, and my ability to stay up to date on their case because I no longer work for that facility, I can think of five youths who are doing very well in their current placements after being with us. In part, because I get general updates from caseworkers who have been children and youth caseworkers who still see them on a daily basis, I know about precisely five who are doing very well, and I just don't know about the others because I don't need that information anymore, so it's not given to me. Yeah, I guess it would be confidential as well. Yes. 
Do you, have you been dealing a lot with the, uh, the opioid crisis? Not in our youth. But the parents? Yeah. It's a huge problem, especially in my area. I don't have any involvement in their recovery and services. It's not one parent, at least. It's both. What, what happens to the kids? Is it, so is it mostly neglect or do they experience other forms of abuse when a parent's addicted to that kind of substance? Typically, in those cases, it's all of the above. Some youths have experienced abuse as a means to an end. Others have experienced abuse just because of the nature of the parent living at home. It's hard to find somebody who comes through our program who hasn't experienced all of those combined, which is heartbreaking. Uh, have you ever dealt with anybody who was a victim of human trafficking? Yes. One of our youths, their mom was their trafficker. And I believe, if I remember correctly, this youth was trafficked as a way for their mom to obtain opioids. Yeah, that is the thing about drug addiction, isn't it? It's like it completely obliterates your, your sense of decency. Yes. It's truly an epidemic. What I do find encouraging in my county is that they are treating it clinically, as opposed to criminally. That gives me some hope. But it's almost daunting because progress, especially in recovery, is very slow, and very touch-and-go. I worked in a rather rural, conservative, old-fashioned mindset community. So it's very encouraging to see that shift in thought. Well, that's good. Is, is, that, is the place you work for, is, that a, is it a revolving door? Do a lot of people keep coming in repeatedly? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's traumatizing to be in care. It's a trauma. To be removed from your parents' care. Even if it is an abusive environment. The child is being forcibly removed and placed in another setting, in the care of virtual strangers. A lot of the times when a case would go to court for a judge to hear an update on their progress and decide what to do, moving forward, the youth was placed back in their parents' care. The children who have come back, a lot of the times, I go to court to testify on their progress. They ask my opinion, typically it's my opinion, and the program's recommendation is that the child remain in residential treatment because they weren't quite at the level where they were ready to turn this into a less structured thing. Sometimes the judge will be like, yeah, okay, you better go home. And then not even two weeks later, we had a youth, when that happened, he was back in our care. And that just sets them back so far in the progress they originally made. And the children who are victims of this kind of abuse and neglect, they're not always cooperative, right? Like they're so scared of the family being broken up that they don't always want to answer questions. Does that often happen? Yes, definitely. Yeah, how do, you, is it, how do you get them to open up? I imagine that must be very difficult. In my job, specifically, it's very important to establish a rapport. I had something kind of unique that the other staff didn't have in that I'm probably closer in age to the youth than the other staff are. So it was easier for them to build a relationship with me. And typically, when they build trust with you is when they become more open and honest with you. And that makes your job so much easier because you can start targeting service and goals and you can start reporting back to their mental health service providers. And that helps them create a more targeted treatment plan. Building a rapport is super important in this line of work. So who are the, the youngest uh, individuals that you've uh, cared for? 12 and 13. Most of the youth that came through were 14 through 17. I only had a few 12 through 13 year olds. You have to have a lot of patience to deal with children that age in general. When you combine that with trauma, it's almost impossible. But it's just important to remain patient. Follow their lead with a lot of stuff. If they want to talk about their favorite cartoon, just talk about their favorite cartoon. And then, after a while, they feel more comfortable talking to you. 
yeah, you can establish some common ground and then they don't feel like it's all business. Yeah. And uh, so so you've never dealt with a, a prepubescent before? No. And uh, so is there a lot of denial too where like someone called on their behalf and they either don't know why or they just can't appreciate why? Like they've been manipulated by the abusive parents into thinking what's going on is normal? I haven't dealt with that specifically. They typically do remain in contact with their parents. And the visits, with my program, are supervised when they come to the property, and phone calls. And depending on what the judge wants, most of those phone calls are observed, so they're monitored. They typically remain in positive contact with their family. But it's kind of wild to see how they interact with their parents, and then once they get off the phone, or they leave the building, it's almost like emotional gymnastics. Visits are typically hard. And what's it like for you to deal with the parents? Do they give you a hard time? I was a case manager. One of my duties was creating individual service plans with the youth and service providers and the parents. Every week we would have a meeting and the parents came to the meeting. For the most part, they were respectful. There were a few parents who felt that yelling at me would solve all of the problems. It's hard, and it comes back to, it takes a certain kind of person to do this job well. And you can't do it well without a piece of you taken away. Or becoming more cynical. And then dealing with parents who have an attitude like they've done nothing wrong. They don't know why this is happening. Or their behavior is excusable in some way. And having to be so polite and professional with those kinds of people after knowing what they have done, is so frustrating. And it really changes the way you look at people on the street. If, it, if it's a matter of sexual abuse, how do they respond? Like when you're when you're honest and, and, and upfront about that, what, what would they typically do as a response? I was never in a position where I had to confront a parent about that. Typically, if we were discussing if the child was granted off-ground visits, spend the weekend at home, they would discuss how that was going, and the rules for the visit. And they would just kind of go along with it if they were the perpetrator. But in quite a few cases, the perpetrator of the abuse was just not involved with the child at all. But when they were, they were compliant with the regulations they were given. And they really don't have much to say about it, which is kind of frustrating to see somebody just nodding along with you, going, yeah, yeah, okay, that's fine. Yeah, when they've done something just so horrible. Are most of the children forgiving towards their parents, or do they accept what has been done? Um, how many of them... Um, are indignant and then don't want to go back with their parents? Is that, is that the exception rather than the rule? A lot of them actually want to be returned home, but not necessarily because they want to be around their parents. It's because they want to be in an environment with no rules, and people aren't monitoring them, and telling them when to go to bed, do your homework, making them go to school. That's kind of the reason they want to go home. These are children who have come to terms with what's happened to them, to the extent where they can say, yes, this has happened but I don't think forgiveness is on their mind at all. With some of them, they want to forget that it even happened. Others, they are angry. And some are in absolute denial. Yeah, and, and uh, do, do some of them lash out while they're in the, the residential treatment facility? Is there, is there a problem with violence or anything? Yeah. There's a lot of tantrums. There are a lot of outbursts. I was trained in physical intervention, which is where we are legally allowed to say that it's a restraint, but they are restraints. Thankfully, I never had to use it. Other staff members have had to use it over the years. Most of the time it's not because youth are attacking other youth. It's because their outburst has reached to the point where they have prevented harm to themselves and others. 
and anything that sets a youth off, whether it's a smell of cologne, it's a commercial on the TV, somebody was talking about a topic that was prevalent at the time of their abuse, anything can do it. It's hard to adjust to that sort of working environment, where you can't walk on eggshells all the time, but you really need to know each case very well to know what sort of conversations are just not going to go over well, what kinds of shows they can watch on TV. Mostly it's not youth on youth violence. They are starting to throw furniture, they're punching holes in walls, or they're threatening to harm themselves. That's usually when we would have to intervene. Yeah, because... They have come to view authority figures as posing a threat to them, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah, oppositional defiant disorder. Yeah, that's what they tend to call it in the psychiatric community. And uh, so you've mentioned earlier um, about the effect that this position can have on the practitioner. And as so are you a different person now after having been immersed in this uh, line of work for as long as you have been? Absolutely. I'm not as forgiving as I once was. I really can't go into stores anymore without wondering if this child is being abused at home, or is just upset because mom won't buy him a toy. I can't really have a conversation at a family event with a child without analyzing everything they are saying to me, and trying to find red flags in that conversation. My anxiety has been significantly worse. But you really have to make the commitment to self-care, and go to therapy, and do what you need to do to be able to function. Are you, do you plan on becoming a parent yourself one day? Not at the moment, no. That could change seven years from now. I never really wanted kids. I enjoy working with him, and I enjoy being around them, but the job has also affected how I see that. What could I do that could accidentally screw this kid up? Not that I would ever abuse a child. It's terrifying to me how easily everything can go south. Well, yeah, especially if it's your first child, too, because... You've never been a parent before. I think every parent makes mistakes. Yeah. And then I guess also you probably you would probably be very paranoid. I guess if you have, if you ever had to send them off to somewhere where they would be uh, supervised by someone else. Absolutely. Trust no one. That's kind of what I've gotten out of all of this. One thing that used to be a serious problem I know in the foster system was that you would take a child who had been abused in their uh, home with their biological parents and then they'd be placed in a foster home and then they'd be abused there. Uh, has there been any improvement in that area? Have, has the system gotten better at screening potential foster parents? I would say it has gotten better. I can only think of one case that happened years ago in my town where that did happen. I know that an equally prevalent problem that the foster system has is foster families that are doing it for money as opposed to providing a safe structured environment for these kids. Yeah, yeah, I know it's uh I remember Chris Rock saying his 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 parents would pay for his his Christmas present money by taking in foster kids. But he said, you know, most of them most other foster families would do things like make the kids eat dinner down in the basement or something like that and they would not allow the the foster child to mix in with the family. Are you aware of anything like that still going on? I'm not. I can't say that it isn't happening, but I'm not aware, and I can't speak for the rest of the agency. To my knowledge, that isn't happening. Okay, that's good then. And then, and then you know, there's another complication that uh, the system's doing the right thing by taking the kids into foster care as long as it's necessary, but then that's kind of traumatic in and of itself, not that it's the system's fault. It's really the abusive parent's fault. But being in, going through the system, that's that's a new form of trauma, is it not? Yeah, 
Like I said earlier, anytime you remove a child from their home environment, regardless if that environment is significantly more traumatic for the child, it's going to scar them, especially when these kids are at such a significant stage in their development. Sometimes, removing them from homes can create a lot of attachment disorders. Unfortunately, I don't see any aspect of the system that isn't already inherently traumatic, regardless of its being done with the best of intentions. I hate to say, it's almost like a necessary evil, really. While you are creating trauma by placing them in a completely different environment, when you stack that up against the trauma they are experiencing at home, it's the better bet. I'm, one thing I imagine what must be really difficult, have you had kids where they didn't understand why it's all happening and they're just begging you to take them back home? Has that happened? Yes, and it's soul-crushing. I can think of one youth where they were removed, and they had a very low IQ, very low functioning. He would just repeatedly ask you why he couldn't go home. It's heartbreaking to have to repeat it to them over and over that it's not their fault. And they're asking, what can I do so I can go home? Having to explain that it's not within their control, it's heartbreaking. And uh, do you find actually that um, kids with disabilities, whether they be intellectual or physical, do they tend to be disproportionately targeted for abuse? I can't say yes or no. Common sense would say yes. If you kind of look at it through the lens of criminal opportunity, people typically take advantage of those who are easier to manipulate. So I would say yes because people with intellectual disabilities and lower functioning levels, they are easier to manipulate. They are easier to groom. And uh, who would you say does most of the reporting? Uh, is it the victims or is it outsiders who kind of have kind of put two and two and together and realize something's not right? A lot of our agency's referrals actually come from schools. In the United States, anybody who works with children, whether you are a caseworker, or a teacher, or even members of churches, you do mandated reports. Anytime you see something suspicious, or a child says something to you that raises alarms, you report it. And then that report will go through to the county agency, which will then open the case and start an investigation. Unfortunately, because of COVID, we've been experiencing a huge decrease in reports. That's tragic because they're not really around the one person they can count on to keep them safe. So they're forced to be at home with their abuser. Yeah, apparently uh, the rate of child abuse has escalated since the pandemic began. Yeah. And so reporting's gone down, but incidents have gone up. And even now, so it, so it must be hard to, to act on it too, even if you do get reports. Like, have you had to alter the way you approach these cases now? I started a new job with social services back in March. But I know friends and co-workers who are caseworkers for children and youth and it really has affected their efficiency because for a couple of months, they weren't allowed to go out to these homes and investigate. And that's a huge part of your job. What's interesting is we've been receiving reports from soon-to-be parents. The child isn't born yet. They've been reporting conditions of the home, for example. We've been getting a lot of those reports. That's interesting to see. But things are slowly getting back to normal here. I think we're still going to see a pretty low rate of reports simply because the kids' schools aren't going to start opening here for a while. Until the kids go back to school, we're not going to see that level of reporting. But we're acting as best we can. And, uh, yeah, unfortunately, it's just resulted in more kids being abused. And because they're in the home, it's, it's, it would be a lot harder to tell if they are being victimized. And then, of course, there'd be the, the additional... So, I mean, how many people are staying in that uh, resident 
dental treatment facility that uh, you've worked with? Our max capacity, I'm trying to remember, it was either 14 or 18. I want to say 14 was the max we had when I was working there. And it's chaos. Sometimes it's the good kind of chaos, sometimes it's the bad kind of chaos. We've had good days too. It's not always a bad day. But when it's bad with that number of youth in the building, it's catastrophic. Uh, have you ever been in a situation during your time as a social worker where you felt your safety was at risk? In moments? No. But after coming home and thinking about it, I'm like, well, that was probably not what I should have done. I've had youth get super angry and escalate very quickly and start getting in the face of one of my staff members, and I'll just step between them and say, okay, you're going to go to your room. You're going to go cool off. And have the youth go to their room and run into their room with them and talk them down. And after coming home from that, I was like, yeah, I was not trained to do that. But in the moment, a lot of the time, that training goes out the door, and you just kind of react. But I've never been threatened. And I've never had to restrain a kid. But I've probably done things that I could have done in a safer way. Uh, so it well, was part of your training to deal with people who are hysterical and not open to reason? Yeah. We really focus on de-escalation. A lot of the time when that happens you just try to talk them down as best as you can. In other situations you just let them, especially when they are at a peak of their anger, you just let them alone. There's nothing you can say that will bring them down. It will only escalate them further. You give them the time they need, within reason, on their own, to just start to come down. Hopefully you go and officially de-escalate it. And what do they usually, what would trigger a lot of these incidents? Is it, uh... Deep for them, is it dealing with rules all of a sudden? Like if they if they have oppositional defiance disorder, is is that something where you you know you have to they have to be in bed at a certain time and they don't like it? Oh yeah, a lot of it, especially with the younger ones, like twelve and thirteen, bedtime is a huge problem. And we had a level system, so you would start on orientation, then you would go up to level one, level two, and level three. The higher you were up in the levels the more privileges you had. The later you could stay up on a school night and on the weekend. Typically, on level 1, your bedtime is 8 o'clock. And this did not sit well with our 12-year-old. So every other night he would just sort of throw his weight around. And I went, okay, well, we're doing this again. So, you can go in your room. You can use your coping skills, whatever, just let me know when you're done. And that would typically work. It would make them a little bit angrier just because nobody was giving in to them. But usually they would calm down. Other times, what a lot of them would do when they were super angry was they would start punching walls, or kicking the floor. And that usually ended up with us sitting in the emergency room to get their hands checked out at, like, 11 o'clock at night. But nobody ever had a break. It was usually just a sprain, or nothing at all. So it got to the point where I would walk home from the emergency room. They would have us come in right away just so we could leave. Have you ever um, had someone who experienced such pronounced neglect for so long that when they came to you, you practically had to, to civilize them like they just had no conception of what normal life is? Not to that degree. Mostly what we would see was that anger towards rules and structure. We've never had to teach social norms in my experience. You would see this a lot, specifically in siblings or older youth they would be more of a parent. They would take on that parenting role because with their siblings they are used to neglect from their own parents, they would take over that role. When that happens, it's not so much a sign of maturity. They're neglecting their own needs to take care of their sibling, 
or the other youth. So we would have to curb that behavior. That was the most extreme it would get in my experience. Yeah, and it's traumatic for a kid like, say, they're 12 years old to have to take on a maternal or paternal role that age. That that's That's too much responsibility at that point in life, isn't it? Yeah. And it's hard to explain to a 15-year-old that this isn't normal. Your focus shouldn't be on your younger sibling. It should be on your own recovery. Initially, they're usually very stubborn. And they kind of dismiss that. But after some time, and some structured environment where they themselves are finally taken care of, they start to understand that. But it's a very hard habit to break. But it's not their fault. It's all they've known for so long. And it's one of those cases where I usually do not agree with separating siblings when they move on to a different placement. In this case, these siblings, they were in their mid-teens. They were old enough to function without the other. And with the older sibling it was just so important to get them in a separate foster home, to where they could focus on themselves. Anytime they were together this sibling was just taking care of the younger one. And it wasn't their fault. But since they have been separated, they've been thriving. Yeah, and then that that's... That gets there's a lot of drama involved in those particular cases, right? Because the the older sibling is reacts almost hysterically to being separated from the younger, and that can be a pro, that can be problematic in and of itself, right? Absolutely, and it was very hard to explain to the older one that this was the best option for the two of them. But after some time and some therapy, they just simply came to terms with that. They still see each other all the time, and they are still in constant communication. So it was a lot of assuring them that they wouldn't be without contact, so it eventually worked out very well. But in other cases it doesn't. Yeah, it just occurred to me, you you do this incredibly difficult thing for a living, which is to have very difficult conversations with people, giving people bad news, telling people that they're, they're in a hard situation and it's not going to change anytime soon unless something else changes and... So you're, I mean, certainly people shouldn't shoot the messenger, but is, does, does that take a toll on you that you're constantly having to tell people these very painful things? Yeah, it never makes you feel good. That's 100% one of the hardest parts of working in this sort of position. But after a while you do learn not to take the things they are saying to you so personally. You have to really put yourself in their shoes. Would I have reacted any differently if I was receiving this news in this circumstance? It does get a little easier after a while in an emotional sense. But delivering that kind of news doesn't get easier. You kind of learn how to do it as quickly and effectively as possible. Oh, I see. And, uh, you know, every form of child abuse is devastating, of course, and, and traumatic. But one that thing that's particularly sad is uh, emotional neglect, where they were just never really loved. Um, have you come across that quite a bit? And if so, is there anything that you can do at your side? I have seen it a few times, and you have to maintain boundaries. You have to. You have to maintain your role as an authority figure. All you want to do is give some of these people hugs because they haven't had one. But you can't. And that's also very hard. But I found personally, and this is especially true when building rapport, you'd be amazed how much you can get from somebody by just showing them mutual respect and listening to them, and not treating them like they're broken, or they're bad. Offering a genuine connection with them is often enough for them to be open with you, and behave for you. But you still have to maintain that boundary. Yeah, that, that would be challenging. Um, is, is there, are there alternative ways to giving a hug, that, to show them that you care, that you can prove it to them? I don't think there is anything that can replace a hug. 
just being encouraging and positive. Acknowledging the good things that they do, and praising them for achieving something. Even something as small as going three days without complaining about doing a chore. That can really lift their spirits, and it's good for morale. And anything you can do to improve their situation is going to help you, and them, in the long run. Have you had kids who had been so badly abused that it was like mind-blowing to them that someone could be nice to them? Yeah. I think in every case, regardless of the severity of abuse, it's a whole new world being in an environment where people are actually looking out for their best interests. Sometimes they don't react positively to that because they're expecting the other shoe to drop. In their mind, they go, what's the point of working with these people, and doing what I'm supposed to do, if it's going to blow up in my face? So you see a lot of self-sabotage. But I'd say it's mind-blowing for anybody entering a structured environment for the first time. Yeah, and speaking of culture shocks, um, there's one. there's been an issue that's kind of been on the boiler for a long time regarding physical abuse. Um, it's what is seen as physical abuse in one culture is just seen as discipline in another. And and uh, that's it's been a hot topic for a long time. Some people consider spanking to be abuse and there are others who do not. So w w in your opinion, having been educated for this field and experienced in it, what do you define as physical abuse? Like where, where, do, where do, should you draw the line? I think, personally, physical discipline is such an outdated way of thinking. It's hard because I'm not a parent. But I'd say any time that you're hitting a child, it's some form of abuse. You shouldn't have to resort to that to discipline your child. I think, even if you spank them once, it's going to leave a lasting impression. And more often than not, that impression is going to have a negative impact on their life. You're being, typically, hurt by someone who is supposed to protect you. It really changes the way you think about authority figures, and maternal and paternal figures. So simply I just think any sort of physical discipline is abusive. Yeah, so if you had a lot of parents say to you, look, that's just the way I was raised, and my, you know, my, my parents, my grandparents, that's just the way it was, and I, it never occurred to me that, that I was abusing them. And, and uh, you know, it seems sometimes, I've seen people, you know, on TV give that explanation, and I thought, I don't think they really meant to do harm. It's just they didn't know better. Has that come up a lot? Yeah. I haven't dealt with that specifically. But I see where they're coming from. You can't work in this occupation with black and white thinking because everything is gray. Every case is different. I do think that is possible, but it's just an excuse if you say that's why you do that and then you just continue to do it. You need to be able to learn from that, and change your method of discipline. But if you say that, and continue to do that, you know what you're doing. Yeah, that is true, yeah. Have you had, do the kids ever sometimes act out and abuse other kids there in the ways that their parents abuse them? Like, I know that something that happens with uh, victims of child sexual abuse is sexual acting out, and then you have child-on-child -child sexual abuse. I once knew someone whose brother lived in a group home for boys who had behavior problems, and he ended up getting sexually abused there, which, of course, made it only worse. Is that something that they're constantly monitoring for in that home? Yeah. Like I mentioned in the beginning, every child that was coming in, we would create safety plans. And again, I would say 80% of our cases, with substance abuse, sexualized behaviors were very prevalent in the safety plans for those. When I was working there, there wasn't any child-on-child -child sexual abuse. 
but there were definitely youth there who were hypersexualized. Most of the time it was within conversation, so you just turned that conversation in a different direction, and you would just pull the youth aside later, and be like, hey, you know you can't be doing this. And if you need to explain why, you explain why. It won't happen again for a while. But sexualized behaviors are very prevalent in this field. Especially when you're working in residential facilities. Unfortunately, it's almost impossible not to, when sexual abuse has happened, deal with those sorts of behaviors. Have you found that um, those behaviors manifest differently depending on gender to males uh, react do they act out differently than females? I wouldn't say it's gender. It's definitely individual-based. They have their own ways of expressing that behavior. We have a male youth who is verbally aggressive, and a female youth who is physically aggressive with their sexual behaviors. And then it can switch. I wouldn't say it's gender-based. So I guess it depends on the nature of the abuse itself, too, I guess, like whether it was aggressive or, or they were manipulated into it as well? Yeah. A lot of it was more manipulation over force. But even that is just as bad. It's just as tragic. And is there ever uh, an incident where a child would, would lie about abuse? I mean, they, I mean, they, they usually say, believe the child no matter what. So has, has that ever happened where they just, it, it was just some brat who lied to get their way, that kind of thing? Yeah. I wouldn't say they're a brat. It's usually as a result of bratty behavior. There were a few times, there was this one youth in particular, they did not like what the judge had to say at their last court hearing, or if they were moved down in level due to behavior over the last month. They would make an accusation to kind of get back at you. Every investigation is rightfully investigated from our state, and they all came back unfounded. So it isn't like we didn't do our own due diligence. But a lot of times they're just feeling pretty petty because something didn't go their way. I'm not saying that a lot of the time that children aren't telling the truth. In my experience, it's that what was happening. There were two allegations, and each time, we complied with our state investigators. An investigation happened, and it was all cleared, and the youth even admitted, like, yeah, this didn't happen. I was just mad. But I would usually say, believe the child. Believe them. It is a false allegation. The worst that can happen is the state gets pissy because they had to come in and waste their time. If they are telling the truth, and you don't report it to your chain of command, you're letting an abuser to continue to do what they're doing, and that has repercussions. It's just a general rule of thumb, believe them. I imagine after all this time, you've probably become an expert on body language and interpreting nonverbal cues, has that happened? I wouldn't say I'm an expert, really, on anything. But once you spend time with these kids you really do learn what their body language says on an individual basis. I could tell with one youth that it was going to be a rough night by how they threw their backpack down when they came home from school. It's things like that. I wouldn't say it's a general expertise, but after you spend so much time with these kids, you do learn what they are saying to you without them verbalizing anything. Is that something that you're allowed to document, though? Or like, well, you know, I got the feeling that they... Uh that they weren't being upfront or they weren't telling you. I mean, you can't really report those kinds of vagaries, right? We do. We have a daily log. Every 15 minutes you should log in something. Typically, when you log these things, the record should show that your feelings about certain things are correct. You record everything. Cover your butt. Uh, if you ever had to like interview a parent, have you noticed certain common denominators that come up when they deny things or downplay things? Do they tend to say 
Do Muslims tend to say the same things or cover it up the same way? I never had to interview a parent for allegations. But when we would do intake paperwork, like asking about when they would come in, we would ask them, well, do they have any allergies? Sometimes they just wouldn't report anything. Or when we would do individual service plan meetings, they would kind of downplay their child's behavior in the home when they had off-grounds visits. Usually the truth would come out from the caseworker later on. But they want to look as favorable as possible, so that when their court hearing comes up, they have a better chance of getting their child home. So, they really do downplay things to their favor. Yeah, for sure. Do lawyers ever deal directly with the, with the system at all? Like, do you, do you deal with attorneys a lot? Yeah. So in the United States, they're called guardian ad litems. They have typically, not all the time, but typically they have legal and educational rights to the child. Some are more involved than others because it's a heavy caseload for every ad litem. They come around when they need to, whether it's for a victim impact statement, or if they are giving custody paperwork if the youth has a child. You see them. They're around quite often. Have you had to... Um participate in any trials where a, a child had to testify against a, an abusive parent? And if so, how, how do the children usually do in that situation? I mean, it must be extremely difficult for them. I have not participated in a trial. My role with court was I was a representative for our program. I would go and testify. They would have three-month reviews, so every three months I would go and testify on behalf of the agency and our program and give an update on what their progress has been. And sometimes you would get the side eye from the kid if you were reporting some negative things. Usually, after that, I would step down, and the judge would ask the youth questions. Some of them were too afraid to talk, so they would, especially the younger ones, usually speak to the judge in private. The older ones didn't do that as much. You do sometimes see kids telling you something, like at the residential treatment facility, and then in court, they'll say the exact opposite because their parents are there. It's traumatic. Definitely, because they, a lot of the times, feel like it's on them to get home, and to help out their parents, and have them not be in trouble all the time. The siblings I was talking about earlier, the older one, one of her goals was to get an after-school job, so that they could help pay off their mom's fines. That level of responsibility they feel they have, which is terribly sad. And it really does not help them at all, when they really should be focusing on their own recovery. But they're just constantly thinking of how they can make the situation better for the parent. Maybe it's inappropriate to have the children testify with the parent in the room. It's not so much the testimony, more as the judge is asking them how they feel they have been doing in placement. That definitely happens. I just have not been personally involved in a trial. But common sense would say that is incredibly traumatic and difficult for any child to have to testify against the parents. Yeah, absolutely. And with, the, of course, with no expectation of you naming names, is there is there a case that stands above all the others in terms of its severity that you would cite as being the worst case of child abuse you've dealt with, uh, you know, the, wor the, the victim who had it worse than any other? I wouldn't say that this youth had it worse than others, but the effects the abuse had on them was way more severe than I had experienced with any other youth. On top of being physically sexually and emotionally abused, they were diagnosed with schizophrenia, and experienced audible and visual hallucinations. And one of my first tasks was sitting in school with this youth because she needed someone from our program to sit with them throughout the day. And I don't even think I was on the floor for even a month when I did this. And I had already been doing this with this child for three days, so I didn't think it was going to happen so far. And so, 
This youth started having hallucinations. And I was alone, and I was terrified. So I did what I could, and I ended up having to call up one of the staff members to come and assist me, because they were not coming out of it, and I didn't know what else to do. So, I waited for assistance. And the youth would come in and out of awareness. In that moment, it wasn't about convincing them that these hallucinations were not real, because it was very real to them. It was about being kind of an anchor, that when they did come out of it, someone supportive was there. So I did that for about an hour, waiting for some help. And then, when they came to, they tried to escort her out of the building so they could go to the hospital. And simply, all hell broke loose. She ended up attacking the principal. The other staff put her in the restraint. And we went to the emergency room, and they were fine. And then, a couple weeks later, this youth had gone home for an off-grounds visit, and probably two hours later, was taken back to the residential care facility because the guardian was inebriated. And they ended up cutting themselves in the shower. So then, they were placed on a strict watch. And I spent a lot of time one-on-one -on -one with them because at that point, I was probably the only staff that they didn't immediately become hostile with. And that was happening for about two weeks. And so they made a more substantial threat to commit suicide, and then they were hospitalized. And she was in the hospital for about two weeks. And we had to take turns sitting with them throughout the day and the night with them in the hospital. And I tried my best, I would bring them some of my comic books from my collection just so they had something to do. And it's very heartbreaking because in that moment you feel so useless and powerless. You can train for this sort of situation, but when you're in it, you can't really train and say, this is what I'm going to do, and then, in the moment, a lot of the times, that sort of mindset just goes out the window. You have to fight instinct too. I would say that case really changed me the most. I would say that made me a lot more cynical than I already was. That case, and this youth in particular, really keeps me up at night, still. Uh, so how's she doing now? Better. She is not where she should be, but she is doing better. If somebody fell through the cracks and ended up committing suicide, would you be able to, you know, just... To not blame yourself, would you be able to just see that, you know, sometimes some people are beyond help, they're just at the point where nobody can really do anything for them, or would you would you end up taking that on as a personal failure? I guess it would really depend on the situation. I would say, if this particular case ended up going in that direction, I would have a very hard time not blaming myself, because I was in the position where I was trusted, and confided in. And I did everything I could but it still isn't enough. I still have a very hard time not blaming myself, because I'm just the kind of person, I feel responsible for a lot of things that happen around me. That's the role I usually take on in any situation. It would always haunt me, wondering what I could have done differently because, anybody can do anything differently, and logically I know it's not my fault, or anyone's fault. You can't make somebody do something. That's just how it is. You can't say, if I do something stupid, I can't say someone may do that. I came to my own conclusions, and I acted on my own free will. So if I told myself, no one did that to me. I made that decision, I'm not saying it wouldn't have been based on my experiences with certain people, but it was still the decision I made. And that's just how it is. But I would have a hard time. I would really struggle with that because I feel like I could have done something differently. And thankfully I haven't experienced that, and, fingers crossed, I won't. But I can't say that I wouldn't blame myself. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's it sounds like it's a tough job emotionally. Uh, I know a guy who's a social worker, and, and he handled child abuse cases for six months, and he had to get out of there. He had to, he couldn't do it anymore. 
Um, and then he moved on to an area that has more to do with like job placement for, I guess, people who are at risk or uh, at some kind of disadvantage. So do you, would you like to stay in the particular area work you're working in right now? Or have you considered maybe moving to another specialty in the area of social work? I did get to that point with this job back in January. It was too much. The stress that I was under, it was having physiological effects, so I got out of there. I got a job in the same agency, just in a different position. So, what I do now is I build family trees for families. You get paid to Facebook stalk people. If you like doing that and didn't know it was a career, I've got great news for you, it is. I like this job a lot more. I don't think I could ever go back to that kind of job. I did it well, but it came at a cost. I kind of agreed to go into social work for as long as I needed to because I want to go to law school, and law school costs money, who would have thought? So, I'm going to be here for as long as I can save money. Well, you can always represent plaintiffs. You know, you don't have to be a criminal lawyer. I'm really into sticking it to the man. So I'm really into constitutional and civil rights law. That's what I want to go into. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah, whereas I, I don't know how criminal lawyers do it. I mean, not only are they representing the scum of the earth, but they they usually don't win. That, that's another thing, too. Yeah. You can't take what happens on law and order and different legal procedural shows as truth, because if every case in the American judicial system went to trial, the whole system would collapse. The majority of the time, I think 90% of the time, plea deals are offered. So a lot of what criminal lawyers are doing is say, we could go to trial, or you can just take this deal, you'll take three years here if you take the deal. But you could face 30 if we go to trial and lose. So that's a lot of their work. I thought about being a defense attorney for a while, but now I'm too cynical to do that. So that's a no for me. But sometimes people genuinely believe that they're serving people, or they want to stick up for the underdog. A lot of people have a lot of different motivations. But I just know that I couldn't do that. The, the residential place you were working at, did were there ever any incidents where like a parent came there, maybe with a gun or something, was like really aggressively trying to remove the kid from the place? Thankfully, no. I'm pretty lucky. I've never had to deal with a physically aggressive parent before. Verbally aggressive? Yeah. I've dealt with that. But not physically. I'm pretty lucky in that regard. Have you ever seen any representation in a TV show or a movie that kind of depicted the reality of kids who go through the system in a realistic way? I haven't seen anything fictional. A documentary that really shows the internal struggle within social work and human services on Netflix, The Trial of Gabriel Fernandez. It shows you a pretty general look at the fault of social work. And after watching that, there are definitely things I would have done differently. But at the same time I can't, caseworkers are not blameless. But more of the heat needs to go on supervisors, because the supervisors are the ones running the show. They need to share just as much of the responsibility and accountability as the social workers do. The social work system, the judicial system and law enforcement failed that child in every way. But it needs to be looked at from an educational perspective. And people need to be willing to admit that these failures and these weaknesses are in every department across the United States. I'm thinking more people are realizing that now. But I feel that's something social workers should view as training across the board. Did that case really rock the social work world? Did that inspire any changes? I don't know of any legislative changes. But from co-workers that I've talked to, it's changed the way that they personally do work, and how they advocate for the child. 
I would like to see legislative and policy changes come from it. I really would. But unfortunately, I think since it's been released, the relevance of it has gone down. It's not talked about as much, and I'm afraid it's just going to disappear like every trend. Trend is the right word. I'm afraid that people are looking at it as a fading trend, when it deserves as much attention as possible. Sure. Do you find uh, minority children are more likely to slip through the cracks or that they're more likely to end up in the system? I'm not sure. I can't really speak to that because I work in a very rural, white community. I have not really had any experiences with that specifically. But I would say that that's not beyond the realm of possibility, especially in higher populated communities and urban communities. I would say that's a prevalent problem. Well, I thank you so much for doing this interview. Um, I've been wanting to speak with a social worker for a long time, and I know it's a it's a challenging career for anyone. I wish the best of luck in you uh, seeking a law career. Thanks so much. This has been interesting. Yeah, you know, it has. Yeah. Bye bye. Bye.